0: Chapter 3 of Nature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Nature by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Chapter 3 Beauty. A nobler want of man is served by nature, namely, the love of beauty. The ancient Greeks called the world Cosmos, Beauty such is the constitution of all things or such the plastic power of the human eye that the primary forms as the sky the mountain the tree the animal give us a delight in and for themselves a pleasure arising from outline color motion and grouping this seems partly owing to the eye itself the eye is the best of artists by the mutual action of its structure and of the laws of light perspective is produced Which integrates every mass of objects, and of what character soever, into a well colored and shaded globe, so that where the particular objects are mean and unaffecting, the landscape which they compose is round and symmetrical. And as the eye is the best composer, so light is the first of painters. There is no object so foul that intense light will not make beautiful, and the stimulus it affords to the sense and a sort of infinitude which it hath like space and time make all matter gay even the corpse has its own beauty but besides this general grace diffused over nature almost all the individual forms are agreeable to the eye as is proved by our endless imitations of some of them as the acorn the grape the pine cone the wheat ear the egg the wings and forms of most birds the lion's claw the serpent the butterfly Seashells, flames, clouds, bugs, leaves, and the forms of many trees, as the palm. For better consideration, we may distribute the aspects of beauty in a threefold manner. One first, the simple perception of natural forms is a delight. The influence of the forms and actions in nature is so needful to man that, in its lowest functions, it seems to lie on the confines of commodity and beauty. TO THE BODY AND MIND WHICH HAVE BEEN CRAMPED BY NOXIOUS WORK OR COMPANY, NATURE IS MEDICINAL AND RESTORES THEIR TONE. THE TRADESMAN, THE ATTORNEY, COME OUT OF THE DIN AND CRAFT OF THE STREET AND SEES THE SKY AND THE WOODS AND IS A MAN AGAIN. IN THEIR ETERNAL CALM HE FINDS HIMSELF. THE HEALTH OF THE eye SEEMS TO DEMAND A HORIZON. WE ARE NEVER TIRED SO LONG AS WE CAN SEE FAR ENOUGH. But in other hours, nature satisfies by its loveliness, and without any mixture of corporeal benefit. I see the spectacle of morning, from the hilltop over against my house, from daybreak to sunrise, with emotions which an angel might share. The long slender bars of cloud float like fishes in the sea of crimson light. From the earth, as a shore, I look out into that silent sea. I seem to partake its rapid transformations. The act of enchantment reaches my dust, and I dilate and conspire with the morning wind. How does nature deify us with a few and cheap elements? Give me health and a day, and I will make the pomp of emperors ridiculous. The dawn is my Assyria, the sunset and moonrise my Paphos, and unimaginable realms of fairy. Broad noon shall be my England of the senses and the understanding. THE NIGHT SHALL BE MY GERMANY OF MYSTIC PHILOSOPHY AND DREAMS. NOT LESS EXCELLENT, EXCEPT FOR OUR LESS SUSCEPTIBILITY IN THE AFTERNOON, WAS THE CHARM LAST EVENING OF A JANUARY SUNSET. THE WESTERN CLOUDS DIVIDED AND SUBDIVIDED THEMSELVES INTO PINK FLAKES MODULATED WITH TINTS OF UNSPEAKABLE SOFTNESS, AND THE AIR HAD SO MUCH LIFE AND SWEETNESS THAT IT WAS A PAIN TO COME WITHIN DOORS. WHAT WAS IT THAT NATURE WOULD SAY? Was there no meaning in the live repose of the valley behind the mill, and which Homer or Shakespeare could not reform for me in words? The leafless trees become spires of flame in the sunset, with the blue east for their background, and the stars of the dead calluses of flowers, and every withered stem and stubble rhymed with frost, contribute something to the mute music. The inhabitants of cities suppose that the country landscape is pleasant only half the year. I please myself with the graces of the winter scenery, and believe that we are as much touched by it as by the genial influences of summer. To the attentive eye, each moment of the year has its own beauty, and in the same field it beholds every hour a picture which was never seen before, and which shall never be seen again. The heavens change every moment, and reflect their glory or gloom on the plains beneath, The state of the crop in the surrounding farms alters the expression of the earth from week to week. The succession of native plants in the pastures and roadsides, which makes the silent clock by which time tells the summer hours, will make even the divisions of the day sensible to a keen observer. The tribes of birds and insects, like the plants punctual to their time, follow each other, and the year has room for all. By watercourses the variety is greater, in july the blue Pontaderia or pickerel weed blooms in large beds in the shallow parts of our pleasant river and swarms with yellow butterflies in continual motion art cannot rival this pomp of purple and gold indeed the river is a perpetual gala and boasts each month a new ornament but this beauty of nature which is seen and felt as beauty is the least part The shows of day, the dewy morning, the rainbow, mountains, orchards in blossom, stars, moonlight, shadows in still water, and the like, if too eagerly hunted, become shows merely, and mock us with their unreality. Go out of the house to see the moon, and tis mere tinsel. It will not please as when its light shines upon your necessary journey. The beauty that shimmers in the yellow afternoons of October, whoever could clutch it? Go forth to find it, and it is gone. Tis only a mirage as you look from the windows of diligence. 2. The presence of a higher, namely, of the spiritual element, is essential to its perfection. The high and divine beauty, which can be loved without effeminacy, is that which is found in combination with the human will. Beauty is the mark God sets upon virtue. Every natural action is graceful. Every heroic act is also decent, and causes the place and the bystanders to shine. We are taught by great actions that the universe is the property of every individual in it. Every rational creature has all nature for his dowry and estate. It is his, if he will. He may divest himself of it, he may creep into a corner and abdicate his kingdom, as most men do, but he is entitled to the world by his constitution. In proportion to the energy of his thought and will, he takes up the world into himself. All those things for which men plough, build, or sail, obey virtue, said Sallust. The winds and waves, said Gibbon, are always on the side of the ablest navigators. So are the sun and moon and all the stars of heaven. When a noble act is done, perchance in a scene of great natural beauty, when leonidas and his three hundred martyrs consume one day in dying and the sun and moon come each and look at them once in the steep defile of thermopylae when arnold winkelried in the high alps under the shadow of the avalanche gathers in his side a sheaf of austrian spears to break the line for his comrades are not these heroes entitled to add the beauty of the scene to the beauty of the deed when the bark of columbus nears the shore of america Before it, the beach lined with savages, fleeing out of all their huts of cane, the sea behind, and the purple mountains of the Indian archipelago around, can we separate the man from the living picture? Does not the new world clothe his form with her palm groves and savannas as fit drapery? Ever does natural beauty steal in like air, and envelop great actions, when sir harry vane was dragged up the tower hill sitting on a sled to suffer death as the champion of the english laws one of the multitude cried out to him you never sat on so glorious a seat charles the second to intimidate the citizens of london caused the patriot lord russell to be drawn in an open coach through the principal streets of the city on his way to the scaffold but his biographer says The multitude imagined they saw liberty and virtue sitting by his side in private places among sordid objects an act of truth or heroism seems at once to draw to itself the sky as its temple the sun as its cradle nature stretcheth out her arms to embrace man only let his thoughts be of equal greatness willingly does she follow his steps with the rose and the violet and bend her lines of grandeur and grace to the decoration of her darling child. Only let his thoughts be of equal scope, and the frame will suit the picture. A virtuous man is in unison with her works, and makes the central figure of the visible sphere. Homer, Pindar, Socrates, Phocion, associate themselves fitly in our memory with the geography and climate of Greece. The visible heavens and earth sympathize with Jesus, and in common life whosoever has seen a person of powerful character and happy genius will have remarked how easily he took all things along with him the persons the opinions and the day and nature became ancillary to a man three there is still another aspect under which the beauty of the world may be viewed namely as it becomes an object of the intellect beside the relation of things to virtue they have a relation to thought The intellect searches out the absolute order of things as they stand in the mind of God and without the colors of affection. The intellectual and the active power seem to succeed each other, and the exclusive activity of the one generates the exclusive activity of the other. There is something unfriendly in each to the other, but they are like the alternate periods of feeding and working in animals. Each prepares and will be followed by the other. Therefore does beauty which, in relation to actions, as we have seen, comes unsought, and comes because it is unsought, remain for the apprehension and pursuit of the intellect, and then again, in its turn, of the active power. Nothing divine dies. All good is eternally reproductive. The beauty of nature reforms itself in the mind, and not for barren contemplation, but for new creation, All men are in some degree impressed by the face of the world, some men even to delight. This love of beauty is taste. Others have the same love in such excess that, not content with admiring, they seek to embody it in new forms. The creation of beauty is art. The production of a work of art throws a light upon the mystery of humanity. A work of art is an abstract or epitome of the world it is the result or expression of nature in miniature. For although the works of nature are innumerable and all different, the result or the expression of them all is similar and single. Nature is a sea of forms radically alike and even unique. A leaf, a sunbeam, a landscape, the ocean, make an analogous impression on the mind. What is common to them all, that perfectness and harmony, is beauty." The standard of beauty is the entire circuit of natural forms, the totality of nature, which the Italians expressed by defining beauty il più nell'uno. Nothing is quite beautiful alone, nothing but is beautiful in the whole. A single object is only so far beautiful as it suggests the universal grace. The poet, the painter, the sculptor, the musician, the architect, seek each to concentrate this radiance of the world on one point, and each in his several work to satisfy the love of beauty which stimulates him to produce. Thus is art, a nature, passed through the alembic of man. Thus in art does nature work through the will of a man filled with the beauty of her first works. The world thus exists to the soul to satisfy the desire of beauty, this element I call an ultimate end. No reason can be asked or given why the soul seeks beauty. Beauty, in its largest and profoundest sense, is one expression for the universe. God is the all fair. Truth and goodness and beauty are but different faces of the same all. But beauty in nature is not ultimate, it is the herald of inward and eternal beauty, and is not alone a solid and satisfactory good. It must stand as a part, and not as yet the last or highest expression of the final cause of nature. End of chapter three.